Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode is returning guest Matt Frederick, who first appeared on Some Other Sphere back in 2019, in the early days of the podcast. This time around, we're discussing his new book, A Meeting at the Crossroads, Robert Johnson and the Devil, which explores one of blues music's best-known legends, that the musician Robert Johnson made a pact with the devil for talent and fortune, and not long after met his demise in 1939, at the age of just 27. In the interview, we talk about the numerous factors which combined, or existed at the same time, to birth the legend, the creativity and spirituality of the blues, the rich traditions and folklore of the Deep South, the real-world dangers facing travelling black musicians in the 1930s, and the mythic reputation that could be attained from that kind of life. It was an illuminating conversation. Enjoy! Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rick. It's a real pleasure to be back here. It's been a while, obviously. I think we've all been through a few changes since we last spoke, but, uh, you know, some things stay the same and podcasts are one of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, In your book, you start by describing how you were in the south of the United States, sort of on a, almost on a pilgrimage to the area where Robert Johnson lived. So how did you get interested in Robert Johnson and and his legend? That's a really, almost a tough question to answer because I can't quite remember a point when I first discovered him. I can remember as a kid growing up, I grew up in rural Victoria and the town that I grew up in, we had two main radio stations. One was um, the ABC, we're our equivalent of the BBC, so a lot of talk and the best thing about it was, of course, the best cricket commentary um, around, so that was always mm-hmm. on in summer. And the other radio station we had was a mix of top 40 and classic hits. So they played the music of Cream quite a lot. So I think I can be pretty sure the first time I heard one of Robert Johnson's compositions would have been, um, you know, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, and um, the other guy, Eric, um, doing their version of Crossroads. Um, I think I first heard what came away of Johnson himself would have been about the early 90s. Um, I remember my dad borrowing a copy of the complete recordings from a friend and I can't remember listening to it, but I can remember staring at the cover, that wonderful picture of him um, where he's wearing a really classy suit, posing the guitar and his incredibly long fingers. And then, you know, like anyone does when you're a teenager, you start to listen to different musics. And uh, as I think any teenager is compulsively required to do, I went through a stage where I listened to the music of The Doors and Led Zeppelin and the like. And, that led me to want to discover where they came from. And I discovered the music of John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. And of course, uh, John Mayle and uh, Eric Clapton, that wonderful version of Ramble on My Mind on the Beano album. And from there, I sort of traveled back. This was in the pre-internet days so and involved going to weird record stores and rifling to the shelves and reading copies of books like uh, the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll and watching documentaries on TV. No YouTube in those days, just wait for the right thing beyond. Gradually you you learn about the music and the more you learn, particularly music like this, the more it really means to you because there's so many layers to unpack. And of course, with Robert Johnson as well, there's that 
incredible myth of him selling his soul to become the greatest guitar player in the world, which is a really powerful myth and one which, um, you know, you don't know where you first heard it from. It's just sort of out in the air. It's kind of like schoolyard games with rumours. No one knows where you heard it. It's just something you've always known. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what was your approach to doing the research for this book? I mean, um, I know early on in the book itself, you sort of point out that the meeting didn't literally happen, but it's the mythic quality of the event that you're looking into. Is that correct? Well, you're exactly right. You know, um, there's no point trying to find the actual crossroads where it happened because, you know, um, I suppose some people might believe these things happen, but for most people, you know, the the literal Prince of Darkness doesn't physically manifest at crossroads in rural Mississippi and offer deals for people to play guitar. That's not what we're trying to find. We're trying to find when did this event actually happen. We're trying to work out what this story means and why it gets told. It's um, it is fascinating though that myth really takes hold even in um, elements of the literature that are. I would say dismisses of it, but are more interested in the historical aspects of um, Johnson's legacy. So you look at the um, writings of people like Elijah Wald, Gaudil Wardlow, Bruce Conferth, who have all made incredible contributions to the study of Robert Johnson in his life. And even though they want to try and skirt past this myth, they still take time to go, when could he have gone to the crossroads? Um, where in this life does his story fit? So they still treat it like an event, even though it's an event that they don't believe happened. So that that doesn't measure any um, gaps in their scholarship, which is absolutely wonderful, but really more demonstrates to me the fact that this myth is powerful and that it's worth exploring in greater depth so I can understand what did it mean, not just in Robert Johnson's time when he may have said, or people around him said, or people who lived the lifestyle similar to his said, I went to the crossroads and sold my soul to the devil. And also, what does it mean when, you know, uh, blues guitar hero in the 1960s starts hearing the story? What does it mean to some of the 1970s who hears that story? What does it mean when, you know, a great film director like Walter Hill makes a movie based on the story? Why is this so resonant? What is it telling us? And how does this resonate with, I suppose, our greater culture with older myths? Why does this myth keep on getting told? Hmm. And something else I noticed is that you can almost mistakenly think that because this is such a powerful myth, that Robert Johnson is sort of a, a founding father of blues. But you clearly established in your book that by the time you know, Robert Johnson is born and, and, and when he dies in 1939, that blues is an established genre, which already has a sort of an association with spiritual concepts. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um I think when a lot of people encounter the blues, they feel like perhaps they're traveling backwards like I did. And they feel like that once they reach Robert Johnson, they reach the, um, the origin point or others, they just want to find this one particular guy, but he lived in a culture. There were people around him. There were people who inspired him and you can hear that influence clearly in his music. Part of that influence is what makes his music so amazing. A lot of his guitar style is based around trying to adapt runs that worked very well on the piano and making them work on the guitar. Other things he was doing is taking pieces that would require two guitarists and try to fill in those parts himself. So he existed in a context. And if you don't know that context, you really can't understand what he was doing and what it meant. If you don't know the music of Skip James, then a song like Hellhound on My Trail is, you only know half the story. If you don't know um, 
you know, Leroy Khan, Scrapper Blackwell, you don't know one of his really big influences. You don't know uh, the jug band music of Memphis, which is clearly a huge influence on him, then you can't understand songs such as their Red Hot or even his only hit that he had when he was alive, Terraplane Blues, which is real double entendre song <laughs> in the style of um, those jug bands. Mm. I really um, enjoy the way you write about his life. It's very vivid. I could, I was reading it, I could imagine him in the Duke houses and the stores where he played. Um, so when he's starting out, which I guess is around 1930 or so, what sort of tradition is he entering into? What, what, what would it be like for him? And what sort of things are around him that point towards the myth of the crossroads, which he would eventually become most famous for? Well, we called Robert Johnson a Delta Blues singer, and that was the style that he played in. But he actually grew up in Memphis, which isn't that far from the Delta. They say that the Mississippi Delta begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel, just a block of Beale Street in Memphis, but a part like, um, I don't know, deep in the Delta, like Clarksdale, Mississippi. You can drive to Memphis from there these days. Around about an hour and a half, takes about four hours on a Greyhound, but, um, you know, they don't go direct. Um, but Memphis is quite a different place. Memphis is, uh, it still is, and it was back then, sort of a dropping off point. If you're coming from the south, you want to move north, or you're coming from the north, you want to move south. Memphis is a place where you can stop off. It's not the only place, but it is a place where a lot of um, rail lines pass through. So the famous city of New Orleans that um, Arlo Guthrie sang about takes you from New Orleans up to Memphis, up to Chicago. So it's a strong migratory route. So it's a place where Lots of people travel to to live, work, and create music. So it was a real melting pot. And Robert Johnson growing up there and didn't grow up that far from Beale Street would have heard a lot of different styles, um, but particularly Memphis's own native styles. So the music of W.C. Handy, which was very jazz-influenced, but also was inspired by his own trips to Clarksdale, had this real wonderful early blues sound, um, the native blues of jug band music, which I mentioned before, which is literally performed on the jug. Um, that's creating the bass line as well as um, washboard for rhythm and gut bucket bass while um, singing songs that can be quite sad or quite funny, often both at the same time, would have really influenced him. He would have heard more, I suppose, what you call uptown blues in Memphis. But at the same time, he did have roots in Mississippi. And beginning from when he was in his mid to late teens, he was spending a lot of time between these two places influenced by them both. What I surmise in the book, and, you know, it's hard to know these things because we weren't there. We're trying to guess secondhand from the accounts of people that we've heard who were there, and some of those accounts might be 50, 60 years or more past the date. It seemed as though he was started playing music when he was quite young, even trying to be somewhat professional from around about the age of 17, playing in various Duke houses around Mississippi, but it appears that his style wasn't what they were after at the time. He was, pl- he was more influenced by the music he heard in Memphis than the music he heard in Mississippi. So there was a bit of a, a clash going on there. Now, that was a clash that was later resolved. If you listen to his actual recordings, you can hear all those various influences, but there was a combination going on. We do need to be very careful about, I suppose, strictly demarcating these styles. Um, obviously, musicians travel, they learn from each other, and they'll adapt what they know to suit a certain audience, but it's certainly very clear from what, from my reading of his biography and from my listening to his music that 
I think the music of Memphis, the music of the city came before the music of the Delta. Mm. And, and you describe how there's almost like a missing period in his life where he goes away at the point, at the point where the music he's playing isn't maybe appreciated as much as he thought it would be. He goes away and comes back as the, as the Robert Johnson of fame, I suppose. And, and you talk about how in that period he, he became an apprentice almost to another musician. Can you just talk a little bit about that? That's really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. That takes that famous story that um, Sun House tells, where you know he and uh, Willie Brown would be playing in Duke houses, and um, when it's time for them to take a break, and they wanted to go gamble or drink some whiskey or <laughs> chase some tail or whatever, Robert Johnson would set in to um, fill in for them, but he was no good. People weren't appreciating his music, as he said. It go boom, boom, bap. A dog wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> um, at that point, Robert Johnson goes away. The exact time period that this lasts for is a little bit hard to determine. In some stories, it seems to be only a short period of time, two or three months. In others, it's around about 18 months, which is probably more likely. He's travelling to the hometown of his father. Um, perhaps we don't know, but it, we can guess that maybe he was searching for some family roots. Um, we have no evidence one way or the other, but it's a reasonable guess. He didn't find his father, but he did find uh, Ike Zimmerman, also spelt Ike Zimmerman, who was a local bootlegger and blues musician at the time. And the relationship between them became quite strange. Um, Robert appears to have just moved into his family house. Ike had a family, he had children, he had a wife, and Robert lived there with him and became Ike's apprentice, learning his style. Now, we don't know exactly what he learned because Ike is one of those many mysterious blues men that we know about from the oral record, but who didn't record himself. But we know a number of things about him. One was that he did play regularly at the Rowdy Duke houses where he needed to play the very strong driving beat and play very loud to be heard amongst, above the sound of people drinking and gambling. We also know that he was quite a showman. He uh, did the trick that also Charlie Passon did and later T-Bone Walker and, of course, Jimi Hendrix of playing behind his head, and he'd juggle his guitar, throw it around. And also his most mysterious thing was that he chose to um, go across the road from his house into the graveyard in the middle of the night, and that was where he'd give Robert Johnson his lessons, sitting on a tombstone, um, showing him how to play this style of guitar, which is a strange and mysterious thing, and it's hard to interpret. Um, in uh, one study... Ike's family surmises that it's because the graveyard's a quiet place to play where you won't be disturbed. But there was genuine belief that graveyards were haunted at the time, that the haints, they called them. So there appears to be an element of that, whether it was a supernatural element or it was just trying to get Johnson to do something he was previously afraid of, we can't tell. But it certainly is a strange supernatural element of the um, story. And Ike was very serious. He really wanted to teach Johnson everything he knew, made sure that he didn't fail, that he was a good blues singer. But then once he was done, that was it. Johnson left and went back to being a, a, a walking musician. And as far as we know, they never had any contact again. Right, right. Something else that springs to mind is that how, was, how would Robert Johnson, musicians like him as well, how would they sort of travel from gig to gig uh, I'm, I'm guessing it'd be sometimes on foot and sometimes 
I ride riding the rails, or is that is that a bit of a cliche? No, it's it's definitely what they did. Um, Johnny Shines tells a story about doing that with um, Robert Johnson. Um, Honey Boy Edwards tells similar stories. They they were called in the vernacular time walking musicians. They travel from town to town, but they would hitchhike. They would jump on a train. Um, in fact, that's one possible meaning of crossroads. Generally, outside of a town um, where train lines cross or curve, that's where a train would slow down, and that's where you could jump on board. And that is a way that people would travel. We do know Johnson could drive. Um, he had a license quite young, and he used to drive between Mississippi and Memphis. But there's no record of him driving at during his time as a wandering musician. But we do know he travelled quite far. So again, whilst he's called a Delta blues musician, um, he certainly travelled to Chicago, possibly to New York. Um, there are even rumours um, that are hard to substantiate that he made it all the way to Canada. We we don't know, but he travelled quite widely and he appears to have learned as he went. Um, as you can, as I sort of outline in the book, you can really trace his influence and they're quite broad and diverse. He heard a lot of music, whether he heard it live or travelling gave him the opportunity to hear records that he might not have heard at home because records were a local business at the time again we can't tell but he traveled widely and he learned a lot and that was that was how you made a living you played what you were asked to play and we also know from the oral account that he could apparently play anything yes he was known as a blues singer but when Neil's called for he could play country he could play polkas he could play jazz tunes and pop tunes, whatever it took to um, get, you know, the coins in the case, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this this time period, the 1930s, I mean, anyone caught on a train could be severely hurt by the brakeman or the, the, the guy looking after the train. But as a black man in the 1930s and where he grew up, I imagine that was a, a dangerous life, like just walking the roads in, in that part of the world. Very much, um, as I describe in the book, there were not just in the south and north as well, areas known as sundown towns where, you know, if you were African-American, you're caught in town after dark, out in public, then you were risking your life. Um, that TV series that was out a little while ago, Lovecraft Country, describes that very well, the very real fear that um, if you travel in the wrong town at the wrong time of day, you're putting your life in great jeopardy. And, you know, it's very hard to know what towns those are, particularly when you're traveling freely with only a partner or on your own, you're really um, in a period of great risk. And, you know, that's what I think that he is singing about in some of his songs, particularly in the Crossroads song. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to tell, but when you're interpreting music, you have a look at it in the social context of the time, you think about how people would have understood it. And um, that's an element that's quite likely there. But Yes, you're absolutely right. It was a very, very dangerous occupation. And it was also one that was not considered respectable at all. Um, blues music was very popular amongst the African-American communities, but that doesn't mean that you'd want your son to grow up to be a blues musician or your daughter to marry one. It was um, you know, low down in the hierarchy and not a respectable thing at all. So he was even in danger from his own community in many ways if he acted out of line, he was an outsider, could find himself in a lot of trouble. Hmm. I mean, I, I can't help thinking that if this was me, if I was um, 
a, a musician walking the roads and knew it was dangerous, you'd lean into the superstitions, like you'd well, you'd learn to respect the roads, and if you found anything that could sort of act as a charm or um, something to give you good luck I, I you would use it and I you know you, you you talk in the book about things like mojo bags and and uh, hoodoo and and all these little things that kind of um like books like the long lost friend and uh, that contain spells for safe travels and prayers that you can say so do, do you think that even if the legend of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil is ultimately a story or albeit one that still is meaningful do you think he could have been someone that would have had supernatural paraphernalia on his person just to help him travel safely from town to town? Well, again, we don't know. We don't have any direct record of it, but it, it's highly likely. Um, I think it's easy, again, from the outsider's point of view. You know, I'm a, I'm a white guy from Australia reading this, and you often um, have people act as though these voodoo and hoodoo traditions are something mysterious and dangerous, uh, secret initiative or tradition, but they're actually very, very common. Um, you could go to your um, local store and buy basic char- charms, whether it's a candle to burn, a prayer card, and there were specialty mail order companies that would sell charms and protections for people, as well as you know, various independent practitioners, spiritual churches, and all the rest of themselves definitely around. Um, and I consider quite likely that Johnson would have engage into some degree i mean you know what have you got to lose if it works you've gained something if it doesn't you haven't lost all that much so definitely something would be engaged in and if not engaged in directly he would have been familiar with it was part of the air you know growing up in beale street or near beale street there were you know spiritual paraphernalia pieces of spiritual paraphernalia available quite openly um i mean even today if you're traveling through the right parts of mississippi and you stop at the right gas station you check in the back room, you can buy, you know, charms and candles and all the rest of it. So it's it was around and it still is around. Um, I suppose one of my favourite examples from the time, and this is not related to, I suppose, protections on the road, but one of the most common pieces of spiritual paraphernalia you could get would be a dream book. So that would be a book of what you could dream of and the number associated with it. Um, and this isn't a specific example, but just suppose you dream of, you know, a cat, that might need, mean the number eight. And that's important to people who are playing the numbers games, the local, under the radar, under the law lotteries. You dream about this, this tells you the number's going to come up in the lottery, you enter that into the numbers game. So it was part of the air you breathe, these kinds of practices. Um, no different, I suppose, to today. We might see our horoscope in the paper. We might uh, have a friend who can read our tarot cards. Certainly back then, uh, mojo bags, hot foot powder. Um, there were charms and powders for winning court cases. It was, it was just around. It was quite common. There were some parts that were more, I suppose, taboo than others. Um, you know, engaging in certain charms. You knew somebody did that. You knew somebody who made a mojo bag. You might steer them a bit of a clear berth. You ran in the street, but it was part of the environment. It wasn't some secret tradition it was you know openly there hmm. and so did he have a a reputation did he at this point I'm, I'm assuming it's probably they did but are these kinds of musicians are they aware of their reputation are they likely to sort of 
be self-aware that they can lend themselves an air of mystery by using these things, by showing people the, the accoutrements they use relative to their, their musicianship? Well, they certainly um, sang about them, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, often not so much I'm using it, but it's been used against me. So uh, Blind Man and Jefferson had that very early song, Low Down Mojo Blues, you know, I think my woman's got a mojo, she's trying to keep it hid. Um, you know, this is why things aren't working out for me. Mojo's been working on me. Um, but then, then, of course, you have those um, songs edition. You think about the 1950s composition, Hoochie Coochie Man, uh, written by Willie Dixon, where, you know, it's famously sung by Muddy Waters, where he sings, I've got a black cat bone, I've got a mojo too. I've got John the Conqueror going to mess with you, going to make all the girls leave me by the hand. The world's going to know I'm the Hoochie Coochie Man. You know, very boastful. But you had other artists who were more strongly associated with it. Um, Pity Wheatstraw is probably the most famous. He uh, was the high sheriff of hell, the, the devil's son-in-law. There's only one picture of him, and he's holding a trike and resonator guitar, which is unusual because he was actually a piano player. But uh, he definitely tried to have a um, diabolical image. But at the same time, if you're the devil's son-in-law, that means that you uh, married the devil's daughter, which means you're in a <laughs> bit of a bit of a bad situation. It's not just talking about who you are, but it's talking about the people around you, and you know it's a bit of a bit of a bit of a source of humor as well as um, as well as mystery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It. Um, I have to say, I don't think I've had a an episode of the podcast so far where there have been so many amazing names of people. <laughs> They've all got great names, <laughs> bluesmen. Well, you've got to be remembered. You've got to have a name that stands out on the record cover so people go, I think I'm going to buy this one. Yeah, absolutely. So Robert Johnson dies in 1939 at the age of 27. Um, at that time, is there any sort of hint that his death is related to the bargain that he made? Again, when we're not sure. There are rumors that people have been telling that story about him at the time but and when i say rumors i mean very very vague ones so a researcher will mention somebody who heard from somebody else that this was a story so we don't really know but at the same time there was an air of mystery being um being brought out so i mentioned um that you know not long after he died there was this from spirituals to, to swing concert at carnegie hall which is meant to show the whole history of African-American music, literally from field spirituals to the contemporary swing music of the day. And the intent was to bring out Robert Johnson as a representative of the country blues style. So they did go and try to find him, but they got there too late. So instead of him appearing on stage and performing, out they roll a gramophone player, make a big hagiographic speech about how he was meant to be the star attraction for the night, and play one of his records. And I mean, if you want to get a myth going, that's an amazing way to do it because of course, that's what everyone's going to be talking about at the end of the night. They might've seen some amazing music, but you know, it's like fishing. It's always the one that got away that uh, you keep on talking about. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, so in the book, you talk more about the crossroads tradition within blues itself. So how far back does that go within the genre? Well, that's a that's an area I sort of had to dive into a lot of my own research. So there's been 
I suppose there is one line of inquiry which supposes that the Crossroads story was something that was to some degree made up by white blues fans in the 1960s and attached with Robert Johnson in order to give it an air of mystery and that it's sort of been a bit of a millstone around the neck of blues fans ever since. But when I dove into it, I think it goes back quite a lot further. Um, I talk about uh, the spiritual song, Angels Meet Me at the Crossroads, which dates back to the 1880s. And certainly the crossroads is an important symbol in both um, white and African-American religious traditions in the South. Um, all you need to do is jump on Google Maps um, and find a random area of Mississippi or Tennessee or Arkansas and type in crossroads and you'll get a, you know dozens of churches called the Crossroads Church. Um, that symbol of the point where you choose to either accept or reject you know Jesus Christ. Um, most of these traditions are very strictly Protestant, um, derived from some form of Calvinism and Pentecostalism. So that idea that it's that acceptance to be a believer or not that determines your salvation. And that can be represented by a crossroads. So you've got that early gospel song, Angels Meet Me at the Crossroads, which was very popular. Um, I saw an example where um, one of the early recordings is by a blackface minstrel singer. Um, and if a blackface singer is performing a song like that, obviously to make fun of the original singers, it means that song must be very well known. And in fact, it's still sung today by various, you know, Glee clubs and Jubilee clubs and all the rest. So it's really part of the tradition. And then you look at the blues songs. I mean, you go back to the story of W.C. Handy, the so-called father of the blues who wrote so many of those early blues compositions. He describes discovering that music where he's at a railway station um, just near Clarksdale, Mississippi, and he hears a musician playing slide guitar and singing a song that says, I'm going where the southern crosses the dog. And that's a song about a crossroads. It's talking about, well, two railway tracks, the southern of the dog with two railway lines. But it's, descri it's using that crossroads symbol where two ways of passage cross over one another to symbolise moving away, getting out of town, moving from one situation to another, making a choice to change your life in a way that might be good or bad. And you see that a lot in the um, old blues songs. So they don't always specifically mention the crossroads itself, they don't always say, I'm going to the crossroads, but they always say, I'm going where one road crosses the other. That's a, um, that's a very big part of the blues tradition. And that appears to be what Robert Johnson is partially conjuring when he's singing that song. Um, he says, I'm going down the crossroads, I fall down on my knees. And it could be either that gospel tradition or that blues tradition. It's that wonderful um, tension between the two. Is he talking about choosing salvation or choosing the sinful life of a blues man. And of course, we know what he chose and that comes across quite clearly in the lyrics, even name checks, another well-known blues in the time who I mentioned already in this interview, uh, Willie Brown, you can run, you can run, tell my poor friend Willie Brown. So he appears to be drawing on a tradition where people knew what he was singing about when he sang about the crossroads and it was a, a very, very deliberate choice. Hmm. Um. You also talk about how there are indications that some musicians did make deals. A, a chap called 
Tommy Johnson, um, no relation of Robert Johnson, but at least he tells the story about himself that he did, he did something along those lines. Yeah, that story comes from um, Tommy's brother, Liddell Johnson. Um, Tommy was a marvellous singer, um, not a particularly great human being. He's, um, his most famous song is called Can't Heat Blues, um, from which this um, great 60s blues band, who's still around today, Can't Heat, got their name. Um, canned heat was a way of um, making alcohol by straining sterno solid camp fuel through a cheesecloth or a sock and drinking what came through. Not a thing that's good for your um, for your health. Um, and we have a story from the 60s where his brother, who was a preacher called Liddell Johnson, tells a story. This is how Tommy Johnson learned to play guitar. He went to a crossroads and he sold his soul to the devil. Um and that story became quite famous, and there is a line of argument that some people heard that story, heard the surname Johnson, didn't know who Tommy Johnson was, but Robert Johnson sang a song about Crossroads, so they associated them with one another. Um, that may have been true in some cases, but I'm not sure that's entirely the reason the story got associated with Robert Johnson. Um, that story about Tommy Johnson is fascinating because it's not a, it's not a story about an event, you know, Liddell Johnson is telling that story. He doesn't say, so let me tell you this. On the 4th of June, 1936, this is what Tommy Johnson did. He's not telling about something that happened. He's telling us about what kind of person Tommy Johnson was. He could play anything he wanted. He was a blues singer. The reason he was a blues singer is because he sold his soul to the devil. Now, that's not telling us about a deal he made. It's telling us what this preacher thought about the life of a blues musician. If you're a blues musician, then your soul doesn't belong to God. Um, we also have that other fascinating song by Cousin Leroy recorded in the late 1950s that came out in um, the early 1960s called Crossroads, um, where he just outlines in the lyrics, the Crossroads stories, you know, I went down the crossroads, that's how I learned to play the guitar, a man got my guitar and he tuned it, that was the devil. <laughs> that's what the lyrics say, he's just telling us the story. And again, I don't think he's telling us about something that he actually did, but... I think his listeners would have recognised the story, otherwise he wouldn't have sung about it. And, you know, it's the, um, it's the equivalent of, um, you know, straight out of Compton, crazy mother named Ice Cube. He's telling us a story about how he should be feared, how he should be respected because he's a singer and this is the kind of thing that a singer in his genre does. He, he sells his soul to the devil. Mm, you definitely get the impression... And the understanding that this time period and the, the the way the way that traditions evolve and reputations are built, there's this just a, a melting pot of narratives and and folklore that sort of you can absolutely see how the legend of Robert Johnson emerges from all of that. That's a really good way to put it. It is a, a sea of folklore, and of course, as you know from so many of the other wonderful people you've spoken to. Folklore isn't a static thing. It grows and it changes over time. And sometimes it can be really hard to pin down where one story comes from, where it ends, and all the rest of it. But you can draw together threads by looking at these different stories. Um, I also found in my research the story about um, Blowing Boy Fuller supposedly selling his soul to the crossroads. And that was recorded in the 1960s um, by a field collector in the researching urban blues and um the person who told that story didn't appear to have known blind but fuller just appears to have been a, a story he picked up 
Now, Blind Boy Fuller was a very well-known and respected blues musician, not the kind of person you think of as a Delta blues musician. Now, I mean, songs are things like, you know, Keep on Truckin' Mama, Truckin' My Blues Away, you know, that kind of circle circle of his jazzy ragtime Piedmont style. But he was still, people were telling these kinds of stories. This is what a blues man does. If a blues man has a certain level of skill, then he's the kind of person who is associated with the devil. And then again, you get that story that um, supposedly Helen Wolf told his son about learning to play guitar from a mysterious man in the graveyard, which, you know, it's not quite the crossroads story, but close, close enough. And again, is he trying to scare people? Is he trying to develop his reputation? Is it something he really believed? And again, we don't know. We don't have the single source for that um, Helen Wolf story, but it's, it's definitely very tantalising. Hmm. And earlier on, you were talking about the religious, spiritual influence on the blues with concepts like meeting angels and the devil at the crossroads. Um, But you also in the book talk about the magical traditions that were around at the time and still are in that part of the world. So what sort of things in that respect influenced the blues and make their way into the songs that the people were singing? Well... When blues music is very much music, you know, about the people in everyday life, Um, uh, a lot of modern blues today in in the soul blues scene, you know, songs like um, Party on the Weekend or, you know, Go to That Little Hole in the Wall. It's about what people do to relax after working all week and they'll bring up whatever is around people. In fact, you still do get songs like I'm a Hoodoo Woman um, on the contemporary um, African-American blues scene. So if you're singing about everyday life, that includes the um, the spiritual as well as the, I suppose, secular practices, and that includes not just church, because, you know, church isn't necessarily a um, theme for the blues. Some blues singers doubled as gospel singers as well. But um, rather, if you're going to sing about the spiritual life, you are going to sing about that more under the table stuff that, like I mentioned, is still in the air. It's around everywhere, but you're not going to sing about a mojo hand in a, you know, in a gospel song. But, you know, when Lightning Hopkins says, I'm going to Louisiana, I'm going to get your mojo hand, I'm going to fix my woman, says you won't have no other man. He's thinking about his relationship, but he's putting it in a framework around something his listeners would understand, which is, you know, doing what you can to um, get what you want. And, you know, when all the other methods have failed, people throughout history have always gone, well, going to try magic. Regular sources haven't worked. Prayer hasn't worked. Only one option left. Let's go see the hoodoo man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you also talk about the, the history of gods of the, of the crossroads. So just talk a little about that and how that might relate to the Robert Johnson story. Well, what I was um, one thing, one thing that I was always trying to do with the book was understand what are the roots of this story in spiritual practices. So, you know, obviously it was something that was you know told about Robert Johnson, but if you look through history, the association of crossroads with diabolical forces, if you want to put it that way, and magical practices is very, very strong. And when I dug into it, I found that there was often a, a connection between the various gods that were associated with the crossroads, whether they were 
in some way associated with one another or identified with one another or just had certain features in common. Um, suppose what started that off as I went, all right, well, I know about, you know, Hermes was the god of the crossroads and no, the statues all of ancient Greece, the Herms, the Herma, where um, offerings would be made to them at crossroads. And then, of course, in um, the um, Homeric hymn to Hermes, um, Hermes is the inventor of stringed instruments. I thought that was a beautiful little symmetry. The first god of the crossroads also invented stringed instruments in Greek mythology. Let's see where we can go from there. So um, Hermes was identified with um, Odin in one source, and, of course, Odin... Um, sacrificed himself on the tree to learn the secrets of the runes, very similar to going to the crossroads and, um, you know, making a, the sacrifice of your soul to learn the, the secrets of guitar. Um, so you just get these themes and symmetries throughout history and sometimes you can get um, quite fascinating stuff to wonder what's going on here. So you have um, uh, the Aztec god, Tetzcalipoca, who was the, um, who introduced magic as well as human sacrifice to their culture, was also the um, god who was associated with crossroads and was associated with these black scrying mirrors. Now, one of those mirrors was taken from the New World to the Old and became the property of the famous um, Elizabethan magician, Dr. John Dee, who used it to scry and perform those um, acts of knocking magic with Edward Kelly, and then John Dee was quite like the inspiration for Christopher Marlowe's version of the Faust story of the man who sold his soul to the devil. So you get these, these connections and you, you don't want to necessarily say, oh, there's something going on here. There's some ontologically real spiritual force going on, but it's, it's enough to make you wonder at the very least. Yeah, I completely agree. I noticed that too when I was reading it in the book. Um, Hermes creating the lyre, the, that first stringed instrument in a pretty brutal fashion. Like he kills the tortoise and hollows it out. And that story, I mean, that story itself <laughs> sounds a lot like a blues song. It does. And he's got all those trickster elements. The um, What I call the god of the crossroads is sort of, they're all what we call the trickster gods, gods who are kind of that they bring something to the world, but there's a sacrifice involved as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and something interesting as well is that Hermes, he steals some cattle from Apollo um, and he kills them and cooks them. And, and Apollo really likes the smell, but he can't eat it. Things like that. I'm intrigued by the idea that gods are powerful, but they... They envy humans because humans can experience things and gods don't have that ability. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's an element of um, Greek mythology. The gods don't eat, but they like the, the smell of the sacrifice. And, um, you know, in Homer, he describes, you know, um, people burn the bad parts of the meat for the, um, for the gods and they'll, they'll wrap the good parts of the meat around the bones for them to eat, but they'll disguise it so it looks like the gods are getting the best meat. But, you know, the gods just enjoy the smell. Um, yeah, and there's there's various ways to interpret what that means. Does that go back to ancient practices? But it's it's a fun way of describing that gap between the the mortal and the spiritual realm. A gap which kind of gets sort of stomped on by the god by the those trickster gods who can exist in both realms and 
win both realms and lose in both realms, depending on the story being told. Mm, I mean, and as well, Hermes, after that incident with Apollo, uh, he has to give up the liar and, and become a, a sort of a psychopomp, a, gu- a guide for the dead, amongst other things that he does. But That's right. That's sort of the, the deal. It's a real um, sort of a bit of an origin story um, explaining why he acted in the way he does. And, you know, again, why, why is the story being told? Are they combining different gods from different cultures into one? Are they combining different stories told about the same god in different cultures? No, there's various theories about that, but like so many things, we just don't know. But it's it's definitely very tantalising. But it's it sets up those themes that we see again when we explore these gods, whether it's um, you know Odin sacrificing himself and so on, or you know the story of Faust, where there's there's gain and there's loss, and uh, I suppose it's up to the storyteller, the story hearer, to decide what that means. Same with the story of Robert Johnson. Yes, he became incredibly famous and influential, but he never lived to know it. What what was the gain? What was the loss? Um, is that why the story keeps on getting told? Because it's so resonant with us, that gap between um, ambition and achievement, or being able to achieve what you set out to do, but never knowing it, or perhaps achieving more than you ever set out to do. We, we don't know if Robert Johnson you know, had any ambitions beyond recording. We, we certainly, you know, he certainly can't have imagined the kind of fame he would have achieved today. He, he couldn't imagine a, a CD box set back in his time. It was completely outside of his frame of reference. Mm, yeah. Um, but reading that story about Hermes, you, you do see the, the archetypal quality of the myth around Robert Johnson and and the deal that he made. It's it's very much a continuation of that sort of thing, isn't it? Well, that's what I was trying to explore. Um, how do these myths res- these myths resonate? And is that why we keep telling stories? Um, now, obviously, with a thing like a myth, it's too complex a thing to say. You know, it's not like Aesop's fable where you can go, oh, this means that slow and steady means the race. There's no single moral you can get out of it. it the meaning is different to every every person who listens to the story and every person who tells the story. But there's, I suppose, layers of meaning for us to unpack. And that endless story means we keep on repackaging and retelling these myths. And that's what I think the Robert Johnson story is. It's a way of us retelling older tales in a way that's useful to us today. And it's a fascinating example because, of course, it's one that we can see in history. Um, Robert Johnson was a real person. Now, when his music was first reached in the 60s, we knew virtually nothing about him. As the liner notes say, he was little more than a name on index cards. But because there were people who knew him and knew him quite well who were alive, whether it was uh, you know, Robert Jr. Lockwood, who was effectively his stepson, Johnny Shines, Honey Boy Edwards, to some degree, um, Sonny Boy Williamson and Sun House, and of course, the the incredible work of the researchers who came before me and whose research I rely on so much, um, he's become a real person, but at the same time, that myth is still there. And what a what a fascinating thing to explore, uh, a myth about a person who becomes more real as you discover that he doesn't vanish in the midst of time. The more you learn about him, the more real he becomes, and yet the myth doesn't fade away. It keeps on getting told. It's still important. It still matters, and I suppose... That's what I was trying to explore. Why does this myth still matter to us? Hmm. And so just um, relating to that, 
you, you talked earlier about the the concert that they had at Carnegie Hall, which sort of, if anything, started off the legend about him. What was it that sort of cemented that legend after that? Is there something that happens that that popularizes the story about Robert Johnson? Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, the, I think partly it's a very good story. Um, story of a person who grew up in, you know, very inauspicious, inauspicious circumstances and then becoming so influential. And I think it's important to remember whilst, you know, a lot of people talk about in the context, hey, he was very important because he influenced these white rock musicians of the baby boomer generation, you know, which is a story that people of that generation love to tell. There's also very influential within the blues community itself. We think of um, figures like Muddy Waters, who always cited Robert Johnson as one of his biggest influences right back to um, his first field recordings. He appears not to have known Johnson personally, only knew him through records, but um, was greatly influenced by him. You listen to the early Muddy Waters recordings and, you know, the influence is quite clear. And even his later recordings in the 60s and 70s, um, when he's performing a slow blues, that Robert Johnson influence is quite is always there. And in fact, I heard a story from um, Muddy Waters' old guitarist, uh, Steve Roland, Bob McGowan, that Muddy had a cassette tape of um, Robert Johnson tunes he'd carried about with him on tour. And after show, that's what he'd listen to to relax. And then, of course, Robert Lockwood Jr., who... Um, learnt off Robert Johnson. He, um, his mother was uh, shacked up with Johnson for a while and Johnson shared his music with Lockwood. Um, he, he's, his influence on Chicago blues cannot be underestimated. Playing a very different style to Robert Johnson, um, very, I suppose you could say, jazzy with extended seventh and ninth chords, but he wrote the book on how to be a, uh, an accompanying guitarist in the Chicago blues style and he learnt from Robert Johnson, so that influence is there. Um, he didn't play in the style that Robert Johnson recorded, and we don't know what elements of Robert Johnson's playing continued in his more jazzy style, though played Johnson's tunes up until his death. But in that regard, Robert Johnson was very influential on the vocabulary of certain aspects of Chicago blues. And of course, you know, um, Elmore James um, knew Robert Johnson and performed Either you could say he performed his songs or performed songs drawn from the same tradition with Dust My Broom and his version of Crossroads and that Elmore James guitar riff, that slide guitar after the 12th fret. I mean, that's a whole genre in itself. And the influence of Robert Johnson is just there, clear as day. So, you know, he's, he's very important in the modern vocabulary of blues as well as rock and roll. Um, and, you know, even in... in um, in other musical genres, even in um, in hip hop, a lot of um, hip hop musicians will describe growing up listening to blues music in the home, listening to music that was derived in part from those uh, that small number of recordings that Robert Johnson made. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, something I was thinking of. I'm not sure is accurate, but do you think that the the version of Robert Johnson that sold his soul to the devil exists in a similar way to say? Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke exist relative to David Bowie? I've never thought about it like that, but that's a that's a really good way to put it. Um, and that may be what Robert Johnson did in his day. Like, again, we don't know what stories he told people directly, but that idea of a character that you put on so that you can 
travel from town to town so that you can just walk in and be the person who plays guitar. You've got this suit you can put on. I'm now I'm no longer, you know, Robert Johnson, the guy who was riding railroads. I'm now the blues musician and I'm in your town and, you know, lock up your daughters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we began this um conversation just talking about the the start of your book and you talk about how you were where you visited that part of America. And I just want to go back to that and just talk a little bit about it. What what was it like? I mean, did you feel like Robert Johnson's presence was still there in the in the in the traditions that and the music of the area? I'm, I'm guessing it does. But what what was it like to be there? Oh, I mean, I, I've been there a few times now. I'm on my own, and also I've um, worked as a tour guide, taking people there, which is a um, a wonderful experience. Um, I remember first going there and just digging in and discovering what's there under under the surface um i remember this wonderful experience i was out the front of a store in clarksdale this was during the duke joint festival which they hold every april and the late um elsie olmer he was alive at the time obviously he passed now was just sitting there with an open tune guitar just strumming it with one hand but he was playing such a deep rhythm he seemed to be doing absolutely nothing but that rhythm was so deep and strong it, it really struck me as being that taking me right back to that um that tradition but then you know going to a place like um red's lounge in clarksdale and seeing the soul blues singers performing songs like um the covers of um denise lasalle's down home blues really helped me understand what this music means to people they um a lot of uh african-americans in this music call it grown folks music um, and that's partly because the lyrics can be quite openly sexual and partly because it sings to the concerns of working people and pe- working people who work hard and want to relax on the weekend. And that's what Johnson did. That's the tradition. He would perform. We we imagine these juke joints as some sort of professional bar, but often they were a corner in somebody's house or a very, very improvised thing because workers needed somewhere to go and they needed a place to relax. And that's why Johnson played such rhythmically strong music because people were, wanted to get rowdy. And you know, just like, I suppose, when you go to a, um, a house night or you go to see a reggae sound system, the emphasis is on that beat so that people can forget what they were doing just a few hours ago and start to do something else. And that's that tradition that's continuing on. Um, and of course, the music tradition in Mississippi is still continuing and changing in wonderful ways. You've got great um, contemporary artists like um, Kingfish, Christone Ingram, who is um, a Clarkstown native and performing wonderful contemporary blues. Um, the contemporary band Memphisippi Sounds, which combines the music of Memphis with the Mississippi Hill Country and really leaning on that tradition in um, quite heavy and wonderful ways. Yeah, I mean, reading your book, you get a clear understanding that the music of that of that area is is an intrinsic part of it there was a, a part where you talk about a chap called alan lomax who for the for, the library of congress he he went out there to sort of meet and record these songs and i, I was reading that going oh man i would love to have a have like a tv show based around that with a sort of a supernatural hint that would be my absolute jam and yeah you have a great way of describing it i a very evocative writing style. 
So yeah, I really enjoyed that. The whole book was great. Oh, well, well, thank you very much. Yeah, the story of Alan Lomax um, and his father's while collecting, you know, just the general folk music of America from cowboy songs to blues to the music of the Bahamas, they made such an incredible contribution to our understanding of how music changes and evolves as it travels. And just that story of how he discovered Muddy Waters because he was looking for Robert Johnson and he, he basically says some people, do you know where Robert Johnson is? And I said, well, sorry, he's dead, but this guy over there, Muddy Waters, he can play a bit. And it was when Muddy Waters heard those recordings that Lomax made that he decided to move to Chicago and, you know, make his own way in music. And the rest is quite literally history. And the rest, you know, changed history. Muddy Waters is such a seminal figure in the world. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you back on the podcast, but I think it's been well worth the wait. Thank you so much for, for coming back. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to speak to you again. And um, I really hope people enjoy the book. Um, I think people can get different things about out of it depending on what they're looking for. It is a book of history and it's a book of stories and it's a book of, you know, supernaturalism and a book of music. And, you know, it's, I'm just trying to, to tell a story that means a lot to me in the very best way that I can. If people want to find out more about you and how to get hold of the book, how best do they do that? Um, I have a website, uh, mattfrederick.info. You can find me on Twitter. Just look for Matt Frederick on Twitter. There's a picture of me standing at one of the possible crossroads. Um, I'll let you work out which one that one is. <laughs> um, on Facebook, I'm under Duke Joint PBS. That's the name of my radio show that I do every Sunday from 1 till 3 here in Melbourne on PBS 106.7 FM. And in fact, if you want to listen to that radio show, you can do so anywhere in the world that you are, anytime you please, at pbsfm.org.au. And while you're there, explore the rest of the station. We have programming ranging from you know, contemporary music from the Indian subcontinent to uh, Melbourne Indian, Indian music to um, a bunch of fabulous blues shows as well as my own. And even, I think it might be one of the longest running Northern soul shows in the world. Cool. Well, um, I'll make sure to put all that info in the show notes. Well, thank you very much, Rick. It's been a real pleasure to uh, speak to you again. And um, I'm going to continue listening to the podcast because you get some of the most fascinating people on. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Reading Matt's book, you realise how and why the legend of Robert Junction's bargain with the devil emerged in the way it did and where it did. It's an archetypal experience that has happened throughout human history, and will continue to do so. The idea and belief that a trickster entity created the first stringed instrument comes as no surprise, that's for sure. A meeting at the crossroads, Robert Johnson and the Devil, is an excellent read, and definitely belongs on your bookshelf if you are an enthusiast for the more esoteric aspects of music history. If you enjoyed our conversation, please consider giving this episode a nice five-star rating wherever you listen. Spotify recently added a rating function, and doing this can really help your favourite podcasts to grow and find new listeners. Sharing episodes on social media really helps too. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms.
you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere. To play us out, here is Crossroad Blues by Robert Johnson. I believe I'm sinking down